Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 1,521. You can have anything you want in life so long as you first help enough other people get what they want. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. I'm revved up and so excited to share with you today a very special guest by the name of Aaron McKenzie, who's calling in from, he tells me where it's always sunny, San Pedro, California, and I believe him. Aaron McKenzie is an automotive writer, photographer, a producer, and digital media consultant. He was born and raised up here in the Pacific Northwest where I live, but then he left the United States when he was just 22 and spent a decade living and working in South Korea. He returned to the States in 2012 and kind of stumbled somewhat accidentally into a career in the automotive media space, which meant he partnered with some major brands we all love and know, like Ferrari, Mercedes-Benz, and Jaguar, and worked with his childhood heroes, including Sterling Moss, Sir Sterling Moss, I should say, Hurley Haywood, and David Hobbs. Hurley and David have been guests here on Cars, yeah. Today, Aaron lives in the San Pedro area, as I said, in Los Angeles, California having fun hanging out with cars and doing cool things. So we'll be back in a minute to talk with Aaron, but first, a word from our valued sponsors that make Cars Yeah! possible. We'll be right back. Hey, Cars Yeah! I'm a huge fan of Covercraft. I've protected my vehicles with their products for decades. Want to keep your vehicle's interior looking new? It's easy with Covercraft seat covers. They'll protect your seats from the daily abuse of pets, children, weekend adventures, and even those everyday spills. It's a fast, easy, and inexpensive way to keep your vehicle looking new. All Covercraft seat covers are easy-on, easy-off design that are machine washable. You can choose from many fabric options, colors, and accessories, all designed and carefully sewn for your special vehicles. Their seat gloves are semi-custom fit for cars and trucks, and their seat savers, a favorite of mine, are custom-tailored to fit your seats like a glove. Work truck seat covers are tough, durable, denim-weight fabric. It's like putting a pair of rugged jeans on your truck's seats. Want to stay warm? Covercraft also offers seat heaters. Covercraft is the right choice. Learn more today at Covercraft.com and tell them Mark at Cars Yeah sent you. That's Covercraft.com. Are you a Cars Yeah subscriber? If you're not, go to CarsYeah.com, click on the free book button, and I'll send you my free filler-up book. It's a very cool book I created of fuel filler fun, some very cool imagery, and great quotes from past guests here on Cars Yeah. Plus, you'll get my weekly email follow-up and my weekly blog. Just go to CarsYeah.com, click on the free book button, and I'll send it to you right away. Thanks for subscribing. All right, Aaron, we are back, and welcome to Cars Yeah. Are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I am buckled up and ready to go, Mark, yes. We'll have some fun here. So before we start with some of my questions, what's one thing that many people, or most people, don't know about you, Aaron? Well, first I should say, Mark, I just want to thank you for having me on here. You're really one of the pioneers of podcasting in the car world. It's an honor to be here with you. Um, As for me, I suppose if your listeners have any awareness of me at all, it's probably in my role as a photographer and producer. That's kind of where I am in the car world. But I imagine there's very little in my past that would lead anyone to predict that I'd be doing what I'm doing now. I 
studied English lit in college and was pretty content to hide away in the library with Faulkner and John Donne and Flannery O'Connor and those folks, which I discovered upon graduating did not set me up for a barrage of job offers. And so about six months after graduating, this was back in the spring of 2002, I landed in South Korea where, like a lot of young college grads, I got a job teaching English. And I figured I would do that for a year or two. And then I would head back to the U.S., you know, buy the tweed jacket and I don't become an English professor at some Midwestern liberal arts college. But as one of my favorite philosophers, Merle Haggard, once said, if you want to make the universe laugh, tell it your plans. And so... I landed in Korea and started really, as I do, just reading up on the country's history and was just fascinated by the fact that 50 years before I showed up there, the country was among the poorest, most backward places on planet Earth. And the aftermath of the Korean War is probably on par with sub-Saharan Africa or Afghanistan that we know today. And yet, in 2002, I found myself sitting in one of the most advanced, wealthiest societies in the world. And so, I quickly understood what Robert Lucas, the Nobel laureate in economics, said is that once you start thinking about economic growth, it's almost impossible to think about anything else. And so in in my case, I was traveling around South Korea, working with a lot of the big companies there like Samsung and Hyundai and LG, and just kept wondering, how does the country go from that poverty-stricken backwater to this stable, advanced economy that we know now? And why have so many other countries never made that leap? And so... Because of questions like that, just in my head, I ended up doing my master's degree in economics with a focus on East Asian economic development. And I worked in that field until I moved back to Southern California, or should say moved to Southern California in 2012. And once I was in Southern California, I just started thinking it was time for another career change, I guess. And that was prompted to some extent by just meeting people in the automotive and media industries. And and so here I am now. And so Nowadays, as you said, I work with a variety of brands, mostly in the automotive world, but not exclusively to produce commercials, digital branded stories, and just kind of generally work with them on the storytelling around their brands. We we also do a fair bit of design work, everything from web to apparel, branding, liveries for race cars and motorcycles, pretty much anything that helps a brand define its personality and tell a compelling story for its viewers. So... I guess if you can make any sense out of that life trajectory, then you probably have better pattern recognition skills than I have. But there you are. <laughs> well, it's a fascinating journey. And and what has me curious from the get-go, and we're going to talk more about your business and what you do every day to have fun with cars, but was there a, a secret sauce that you learned living in South Korea of what took that country from where it was to where it is? Because it's a fascinating story. And it's such an incredible, really in the scope of time, a short-term success story uh, for the South Korean country, especially when you compare, of course, to North Korea and the very dismal uh, life that most people have up there. Was there one or two things? that Was it a cultural thing? Was it just a mindset reset, as you say, focusing on economic growth? What allowed that country to be so successful? Yeah, that's a big question. There's a lot of different points of view on it. And I won't bore your listeners with the details of all of them. But certainly, I would never want to be in the position of trying to outwork South Korea. That is a country that has its homework done on Friday nights all the time. Uh, But there's a lot of hardworking countries and people and cultures in the world that are not wealthy like South Korea. So I don't think that totally explains it. But just in general, I think the Korean economy for a very long time has been very 
outwardly oriented, very connected to the world economy, very just an open dynamic economy that values entrepreneurship, that values trade, you know, has created a fairly stable system for businesses to operate in. And, um, you know, and that's paid off as, as we can see. And so I could, like I said, I could go on for hours about this. I won't sure. do that because I know that's not why we're here, but, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's a really a fascinating history to read up on and the, you know, the big question is simply why haven't other countries been able to emulate that success? And that's, right. that's a very hard question to answer. Yeah, absolutely. It was fascinating. I find it, especially being uh, focused on business and entrepreneurial, I always, when you look at success, whether a country, an individual, a business, why do some succeed, some don't? It's fascinating to me, and there's all sorts of facets that go into it. Let's start this journey about your life, though, Aaron, with a success quote or a mantra, some kind of saying that has great meaning for you. It's a nice way to get the inspirational tires turning here on cars. Yeah, so grab the wheel. Yeah, well, one of my favorite quotes and one I really try to live by comes from Zig Ziglar, who was this salesman, motivational speaker, mentor to guys like Seth Godin, I think. Uh, anyway, I once I once heard him say that you can have anything you want in life so long as you first help enough other people get what they want. Yes. And yeah. in most ways, my training in economics is not terribly helpful in the day-to-day -day business operations of my life. But one of the most important lessons you can learn from studying economics is that value is created through voluntary exchange. It's not zero sum. That is, we both win when I provide a product or service that you want more than the money in your pocket. I give you the product, you give me the money, we're both better off than 10 minutes ago. But for you to give me your money, I have to give you something that's useful to you. And the more I do that, the more money I'll get. And so I suppose this is why I have such a fondness for commercial photography and production where I work now. I'm all for passion projects and art for its own sake. And everyone should absolutely have a few of those cooking at any given time. But just don't expect other people to part with their hard-earned money if you don't create art that's of value to them. And it's not just about money either. It's it's more that the commercial space, and this is any industry, not just photography anymore, it forces us to get out of our own kind of self-indulgent heads and to think about other people's needs and desires before our own. And there's so there's a time and a place for following your inner muse, I guess, but using your talents to help others achieve their goals is not an unhealthy exercise. The challenge is always to create something that is artful, but also commercially viable. And this is one reason why I'm so impressed by great industrial designers, for example. So for ex just for you know specifics, um, for example, we, we've done a lot of work with Acura and its IMSA racing programs over the last couple of years. Now, I obviously have ideas about how to shoot and tell stories around racing in different ways, but I can't just walk in and impose my notions of art and beauty on a client and then assume that they're just fools when they don't adopt every one of my ideas. And so our video and photo work have to be in service to the brand's larger needs. And we always come back from races with tons of great material that the brand never uses. Not because it's not good, but maybe it just doesn't fit their needs at the moment. And as a result, we kind of end up shooting in two mindsets, one that covers what we know serves the client's needs and one in a manner that thrills us. And fortunately, over time, those two have converged and we've seen Acura use more of the style of work that we really love. But that's a process over time of persuading them of that value and of, of them nudging us to hone that style to something that's more viable for their purposes. And so ultimately, whether it's clients or employees or whoever it might be, my goal in striving to produce high quality work is just that, you know, I want to help those people achieve their goals. I want them to thrive. I want them to succeed. And to the extent that I succeed at all of this, I get paid for my work. So yeah, yeah as exactly. 
yeah. And so as Ziegler said, you can have anything you want in life, money, happiness, success, however you define it, but you've got to help other people get what they want first. Yeah, I love him. And I love so many of his quotes. I worked for 11 years, way, way back, right out of college as a creative director in an advertising agency. And I had a great mentor there, a gentleman who owned the company where I worked. And you know, coming out of design school and, and being wanting to be a creative person, you want to create all these things. And I, I'll never forget him saying, you need to remember, we're here to provide a service so that our clients get what they want. And we were doing a lot of work for real estate companies. They were building high-rises, shopping centers. So we were, and this is before computers, I'm dating myself, but way back, we designed catalogs, brochures, annual reports, and things like that. And I always remember that because he said, look, we're not designing for ourselves. We're designing so that our clients can get their clients to part with their money and rent their buildings and move into their spaces and whatever it might be. And being a wide-eyed designer, I, I had this whole other concept because when you come out of college, you know, be creative and blah, blah, blah. But when it comes down to it, you're really helping other people. And what you just shared with us, Aaron, is a key thing I've learned interviewing over 1,500 people now, and that is we as human beings are at our best when we are helping other people. And it takes some people a long time to figure that out, and other people figure it out very early in their lives. But it's exactly what Zig Ziglar said and what you've obviously figured out to be successful in your life as a creative person in all the things that you guys do. Let's talk about that process and about all the things you do. Talk to our listeners here more about your company, about what your days look like. What has you excited and fired up about your business these days? Well, I spend a fair bit of my time working on commercial projects as my previous um, rambling there uh, alluded to. Far from uh, rambling. You had, some, <laughs> you had some golden nuggets there, my friend. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, so, you know, my work can include everything from your conventional TV commercials to their equivalent for the digital space. And that's all very fun and rewarding. I, I do love that stuff. But what I really enjoy is the ability to create longer form storytelling series for brands. And uh, just as a, as a for instance, since last year, we've been working with uh, Driving Line, which is Nitto Tires Enthusiast Magazine and Channel to develop a series called On the Trail. It's still kind of in its infancy. We just started releasing episodes earlier this year, but you can think of it as a video form guide to some great off-road trails. And the goal here is to give viewers an overview of the terrain, the necessary gear, the supplies, and some guidance on safe and responsible off-roading in the backcountry regions. And then to shoot it all in a way that's beautiful and maybe if if we succeed even a bit cinematic and so like i said we're still early in the series but we've released episodes on holcomb valley and the little john bull trail up near big bear uh alabama hills which is up in the eastern sierras and then the green ridge uh, state forest in western maryland and you know i think we have some pretty cool stuff uh, planned for later this year as well in addition to the fun of producing these episodes they're they're kind of cool for a bigger reason. I, just because I think, as you know, coming from the advertising space, there was a time when brands could get their messages out by interrupting our programming, by sticking those commercials in the middle of our episodes of Cheers or Seinfeld or 30 right. Rock. That doesn't work very well with on-demand streaming and that skip ads button on YouTube. So now... Exactly. Yeah. yeah right. So brands are realizing that instead of interrupting our programming, they need to become the programming. Mm-hmm. And to do that, the programming has to be of value to the viewer. So in the case of On the Trail, it's fine that all the trucks are on Nitto tires, but the series itself has to be informative, it has to be inspirational, and it has to be entertaining. It has to give viewers a reason to watch, and it can't just be a 30-minute infomercial for trucks. And so 
the challenge with a series like On the Trail is to talk less about ourselves and about the brand and instead position the brand, in this case, Nitto, as the guide into the world and the type of experiences that we want to share with our viewers and invite them into that world. Now, I suppose a more cynical observer would probably watch the series and just allege that Aaron here wants to go camping and off-roading as much as possible and that on the trail gives an excuse to do that. <laughs> yeah. And they, they wouldn't be wrong. Score. <laughs> uh, yeah, I get paid to go on adventures and take pictures. I'm pretty excited about all of my projects, right? right. Why not? Yeah. Uh, yeah. No one wants to hear me complain about my job. Right. Hey. Yeah. Well, it's back when I was doing advertising, this was way before the internet and all the funness that we can do now and be creative. I remember being on some photo shoots uh, for ads or brochures and thinking, I'm actually getting paid to do this. This is incredible. And and that's one of the scopes behind Cars Yeah is that uh, people have found a way to interlace their passion for anything that rolls on rubber. In this case, you're talking about off-road vehicles going into the country. I mean, who doesn't love that? And then getting to work around it and do it. I mean, you've discovered the secret sauce to life, right? Well, there's certainly times, you know, last year, 2019 at the 24 hours of Daytona, it was just a torrential downpour. They black flagged that race eventually. And there's been times on projects where it can be pretty uncomfortable. But yeah. you have to remind yourself that even if you were to go back to your family's house for Thanksgiving or something and tell them about this, they would say, yeah, but you were still paid to go to the 24 hours of Daytona. So yeah. you just yeah. be quiet about it and listen to real problems for a minute. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's why it's important to uh, it's a cliche to find your passion and figure out a way to have a career in life around it, but it is so important, and life is such a cherished thing, and it's it ends at some point. Uh, we don't know when. Hopefully, it'll last a long time for most of us, but it's important to enjoy every day, and the fact that your area of expertise is creating, an, and I really love this. I see these kinds of approaches with brands as being disruptors, and I love disruptors. In the industry, you talk about Tesla or Warby Parker or the Dollar Shave Club, or I mean, all these companies that have come in and changed the way we think about stuff. The fact that you can create little, and I love the word cinematic, these commercials, they are a commercial promoting a product, but they don't come across that way and they're enjoyable. I think back to the, the Super Bowl Porsche commercial where they steal the cars out of the museum and go for a drive. I mean, that's a commercial for Porsche, but it sure didn't feel like, right? No, exactly. And again, you know, I think how often have you seen a a piece of a video or a commercial or whatever, and it's it very clear that someone had a budget to spend, and it was very clear that someone wanted that budget to be paid, but nobody was thinking about the viewer in the equation. And so the, the challenge is always, what would someone actually want to watch? It's not about us. It's about that viewer. Yeah, I've seen, you know, I watch some movies sometimes with my wife. I look over and go, who put up the money for that? That was horrible. And and they spent a fortune. Why did they do that? And then you'll watch some other things and go, oh my gosh, that was incredible. I mean, it was so it was so brilliant in so many ways. Um, I guess it's all in the eyes of the viewer. But it sounds like you're having fun with the team that you work with there. Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't want to be in the trenches with anyone else. There you go. Well, let's talk about the trenches for a minute. Let's kind of go into a zone here where you faced a big challenge or a big failure. And I want you to take us there, walk it, walk us through it. But more importantly, how did you overcome the situation? What was the lesson learned, which is the most valuable part of failure and challenge? And tell us how that experience helped you gain even more momentum and move forward in your career and your business and your life. I could probably 
keep you here all day telling stories about my well, childhood. Good. That means you pushed yourself a few times. Well, because I'm that type of person who will lose three nights of sleep for a very minor mistake, and I'll mm. but I'll spend five minutes celebrating a success. And I admit yeah. that's not a healthy ratio. Ratio, but you know, again, there you are. Yep. I'll tell you about a recent hiccup, only because I think it illustrates a relevant point for our current moment. Uh, and I should note that we're recording this uh, in the middle of the about one week into the coronavirus. Yeah. Yeah, here in the U.S. So it'll become clear why I'm mentioning this in a moment. It's probably been about a year, year and a half ago. We were shooting a project for a tire company. It was a multi-day shoot. The first few days were in a shop, indoors, convenient location, no problem. The last day of production, we had to schlep way out into the desert, maybe three to four hours outside of L.A. to shoot with an Ultra 4 race truck. Uh, for anyone who hasn't seen these before, these are just insane monsters that run at events like King of the Hammers. And they can do 100 plus miles an hour flat out through the desert and then come to a rock wall or a boulder field and just go up it or over it. Uh, crazy, crazy trucks. So the truck we were shooting had a brand new LSX engine in it, which had just been installed, shaken down. It was fresh and ready to go. And of course, it's being run by a professional race team that runs all over the world and knows what they're doing. I love these kind of shoots because we have a very skilled production crew. The race team knows what they are doing. The driver is one of the best in the world. It's just competence as far as the eye can see. So we all get out to the desert and we get the truck unloaded. The sound guy gets it rigged with microphones all over the place. The Camera crew has their gear ready to go. Aerial team's ready to fly. The weather is even perfect. It's not blazing hot or freezing cold or terribly windy as the desert often can be. Everything was probably looking a little too perfect. The driver climbs in, fires up the truck and heads out on the first run of the day. And the engine starts making a weird knocking noise. And just like that, we are turfed. I, as I recall, I think the engine split a piston or something. I don't really recall what the problem was, but whatever it was, it put us out of commission. So for a variety of reasons, there was no way to shoot with this truck again. So that was our last and only chance to get what we needed. And we didn't get it. So just like that, we and the client were suddenly just out thousands of dollars and a lot of man hours and nothing to show for it. And there was no one really to be mad at. It's no one's fault. These things right. just happen. And so as a side note, I remember talking to the director at the time, standing with him after this had all happened. And I just said, look, this is not a catastrophe. A catastrophe is would have been if a camera operator got hit by that truck or fell off a rock and broke a leg while trying to get a shot. Those are the sort of things that would make me angry. This doesn't make me angry. This is a bummer. It doesn't make me angry. But hopefully, as we mature in life, we begin to see that there are things that happen and then there's our reaction to those things. And it's in that gap between those two that we learn to measure and control our emotions. It's, it's really where we define ourselves, I think. And I know in my life, and I'm guessing this is true probably for anyone in any industry is that I've benefited a lot by learning to go through my days with, um, I don't know, I guess a certain amount of equanimity, shall we say. And like I said, we're recording this in the midst of the coronavirus scare. And so this mindset, that ability to find that gap between what happens and our reaction to it strikes me as especially pertinent. And we can't always control what happens, but hopefully we can learn to control how we react to those circumstances. And oh, yeah. I guess you know, life's going to throw you some curveballs. So just does, learn, learn, to hit, learn to hit curveballs, I guess. Yeah. Well, with that, that particular situation, I mean, how did you salvage that? Did you have to end up going back out? No. Now that I think about it, I believe that that truck, that race truck had finished its run of professional racing and was being bought by someone in 
Europe, like a collector in Finland or something was buying it. And so it was literally being loaded on an airplane uh, the next day or something like oh, that. Uh, so it was just gone. And so I, you know, we went back and cobbled together some library footage that the trick was that that truck wasn't in the right livery most of the time. And so we had a very small amount of footage to work with and we made it work. It just was not what we had set out to make in the first place. And so it's like, you know, the shot list got thrown out the window and it's just, what can we make work here? It's not a piece of work that I, I point to it because it's, uh, we made something out of it, but I don't point to it as something that is, um, that ranks atop my happiest moments. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, you just have to make the most of it. But I, I really appreciate your comment there. It's how we respond to these things, which is the most important. Of course, with the situation the world's going through now, uh, I had several people call me yesterday and kind of, I guess they wanted to hear some positive words from somebody. And I'm, I guess they chose me for some reason. I'm grateful they did. But they were freaking out about all this stuff. And uh, after I hung up with the second one, my wife would been in the other room kind of overhearing going, is your new profession counseling now? What what were those last two calls about? I said, well, just people that were standing on the ledge, you know? I mean, it's a little spooky right now. I was just trying to give them some positive feedback. So, yeah, it's how we respond to these things, which is most important. Let's take a short break, thank our sponsors, and we will be right back. My favorite collector car magazine is Keith Martin's Sports Car Market. I've been a subscriber for decades. Sports Car Market is the Wall Street Journal for the enthusiast and the collector. It's your monthly must-read whether you dream of owning a collector car, have two cars, or 200. Sports Car Market has been around for 31 years, and it's filled with valuable articles, intelligent write-ups, and the latest auction sales. Go to sportscarmarket.com and subscribe today. Plus, you'll get the exclusive SEM guide to restoration shops included for free. At checkout, use the code CARSYEAH and receive a 50% discount on your digital subscription. It's an exclusive offer from me here at Cars Yeah. I'm Mark Green, and I love Sports Car Market Magazine. Are you looking for a way to get your products or services into the ears of thousands of automotive enthusiasts around the globe? I can help. This is Mark Green here at Cars Yeah, and I'd be honored to be an influencer and ambassador for your brand in a unique and personal way. Five days a week, Thousands of subscribers and listeners enjoy the Cars Yeah! podcast and website. Contact me today and I'll show you how at mark at com or connect with me through the Cars Yeah! website at com. If you're listening to Cars Yeah! you've probably spent some time working on your favorite ride. But how confident are you working on your finances? You may be able to rebuild a fuel injection system, but can you decipher the details of a mutual fund? If you're like me, investments, insurance, annuities, budgeting, and other financial concepts may seem a bit daunting, but what if I told you there's a book that describes these subjects and more in an easy-to-read and a very humorous way? My friend Chris Kimball, CFP, a longtime sponsor and past guest here on Cars yeah, has written that book, and it's titled The Saga of Ike and Penny, a couple's humorous journey through the confusing world of finance. It's a fun look at things you need to know, everything from investing to effective ways to get rid of credit card debt, and it's probably the only book on finance with a VMAX on the front cover and a classic Mini Cooper on the back. The book's available at Amazon for just $10, and this book will dramatically improve the direction of your financial future. I gave copies to each of my children. All securities are through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Christopher Kimball Financial Services is not affiliated with Money Concepts Capital Corp. Get your copy, The Saga of Ike and Penny, today. 
All right, we're back, and I'd love for you to share a story that instigated the passion that you have for cars, Aaron. Is there a pivotal moment in your life and you knew that you were going to be a bit of a car guy? Well, as you mentioned, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, mostly around Portland, Oregon. And my parents, who didn't come from any kind of money to begin with, uh, divorced when I was about 10. And and I should say they're terrific parents. I don't want to suggest otherwise, but there just wasn't a ton of spare cash floating around for cars that didn't directly contribute to the day's needs at that time. And so as a result, even though I loved cars as a kid, I was crazy about them. I just always kind of grew up with the mindset. It was never stated, but it was always just subtly implied by circumstance, I think, that cool cars were something that other people had, as if those folks were just born with some magical gene that allowed them, but not us, to buy a 66 Mustang or a cheap 911. And I think 911s were cheap at that time. And that dates me probably. And so as a kid, I just never knew it was possible to go buy a shabby old car and through your resourcefulness and elbow grease, fix it up, much less that this was a rewarding process in and of itself. Just no one that I knew did that kind of thing. If if you wrenched on your car at all, it was only because you couldn't afford to pay someone else to do it, not because the work was any sort of enjoyable end unto itself. And so as a result, the closest I really ever got to interesting cars in my day-to-day life in Oregon was in my dad's old car and driver magazines and in the old print editions of Auto Trader, which for whatever reason my dad liked to buy, where those little ads, you remember those little ads and the little single black and white photo with a tiny oh, yeah. yeah. You could imagine all sorts of fantasies about those cars for sale. And I loved flipping through those. But having said all that, my childhood exposure to cars was kind of a tale of extremes because my aunt and my uncle my mom's eldest sister and her husband were involved in racing as an offshoot of their business in Riverside, California, which I'm sure many of your listeners will recognize because that was once home to Riverside Raceway for about 35 years or so was the epicenter of West Coast racing until, oh, I want to say it shut down around 1989, I think. Um, And my uncle for years was involved in some official capacity with the track. I don't know if it's the steering committee, the board of directors, just a sponsor. I'd have to ask him. I can't remember now. And he and my aunt actually fielded and sponsored a number of NASCAR off-road and drag racing teams in the 70s and 80s. They were also, they never had kids of their own. They were very good, however, about bringing their five nieces and nephews, actually nephew, I was the only nephew, uh, down to California for summer visits every year. And since I was the only boy of the bunch, my uncle would usually take me and we would head off to Riverside for the sports car races or the LA Coliseum for the Mickey Thompson off-road series or to Pomona for the drag series. And so... In addition to getting to see, you know, Porsche 962 screaming around Riverside, I was getting to meet guys like Ed McCulloch and Cruz Pedregon and Ernie Irvin who were racing, sponsored, you know, by them. And so I went from having no access to interesting cars at home in Oregon to suddenly just being, you know, gobsmacked by the coolest cars on the planet. <laughs> and, lucky kid. Yeah. So if I, I guess, you know, you borrow the song lyric, you're not going to keep the boy down on the farm when he's seen an IMSA GTP car up close. No, no, not at all. Wow. I mean, that's very cool. Well, let's fast forward to your first really special car. Is there a car in your life that you got that you kind of lusted over or always wanted and finally got it? Well, I suppose, however mundane and average the car may be, I think most of us reserve a special place in our hearts for the first car we ever owned, and especially if we bought that car with our own money. Right. Uh, Mine was a 1981 Toyota Celica GT liftback, hardly an exotic. The 
think they had the 22 R engine, which probably produced a whopping 100 horsepower, if that. It had a crank sunroof, primitive cruise control, I recall, that was dangerously unpredictable. It would just decide it wanted to stop cruising and just say, I don't want to go 63 miles an hour anymore. I want to go 78 miles an hour now. And it would just start accelerating. Um, But the bottom line was I bought it. I think I paid $1,600 for it in 1995, and I insured it with my own money when I was 16 years old. Suddenly, I was just able to disappear and go wherever I wanted to go. I suddenly had a life of my own that I controlled, and I was able to have experiences which my parents did not need to know about, and they probably still don't need to know about. But here I was, almost overnight, suddenly just allowed magically allowed to go 80 miles an hour on the freeway with my girlfriend next to me in a giant piece of metal that could turn lethal at any instant. And if that's not adult level responsibility, then I don't know what is. Uh, And parenthetically to that, I was not surprised to learn recently that one of the most deadly modern combinations is two or more teenagers in an automobile when one of those teenagers happens to be the driver. You think? Yeah. (laughs) And so... I don't know. I guess whatever other cars I might own in my life, I doubt any of them will ever be as pivotal as that Toyota, that Celica. Not because of what it was or even because of specific experiences, which I'm sure were just typical teenage jackassery, but because of what it meant at that point in my life. I incidentally actually sold that car right before I went to college so I could buy a laptop. And I sold it to my sister's best friend at the time. And I, as I recall, she or her brother totaled it a few months later. And so that was my first lesson in not becoming emotionally attached to cars, however much you may like them. Yeah, I've sold two cars I was really fond of that the new owners totaled. Uh, they were both not their fault. Someone else hit them, but the cars were destroyed. And after all those years of my caring for them. But the Celica, I loved the uh, mid-70s Celicas. I had a friend who had one Celica GT. Loved driving that car. And they had very robust bulletproof engines in them. Uh, they just would go forever and ever. Well, let me ask you a bit of an introspective question, Aaron. If you woke up tomorrow and you were manifest as a car, what would Aaron be and why? Yeah, I guess we could really settle onto the therapist sofa with that one, couldn't we? Yeah. How are you feeling today, Aaron? <laughs> well, you know, look, I don't like ostentation and I don't really enjoy being the center of attention. And okay. I. And actually, if there's one thing that kind of bothers me in the car world, and which I find actually a bit off-putting, it's the amount of peacocking that we see. Yeah. I get that this is probably etched into our DNA in some primal way, but it's something I try to control in myself. And I just always say that I don't want to be known for, for recognized or admired for things I just went and bought, in which anyone with the same amount of cash could have purchased. I would rather get attention for something that I've made or an idea that was unique to me, if I ever happen to have such an idea. Uh, But I suppose if I'm being aspirational in this answer, I think I'd probably point to something like an AMG C63 sedan, pretty understated appearance, and you might not even notice it as anything other than a small little Mercedes unless you really know cars. But internally, it packs a hell of a punch. Having said that, I'm not sure anything in my personality can compare to that 6-liter V8. And honestly, what I really respect and what I actually strive for is just quiet competence. I love people who do their jobs well, not because they want public accolades or because they're in competition with someone else, but that's just because that's what you do. Yeah, kind of a sleeper uh, in a way. That's the way I look at a car like that. They're a bit of a sleeper. I mean, even the M3s, or I have an E46 M3, and most people that don't know cars just think it's a an older BMW, but it packs a punch when you want it to. You push that uh, sport button and the thing will light up and, and goes very fast and has some fun. But that's a nice, tr- nice correlation there. I think you put that well. 
an AMG C63 sedan. I know some folks that have those that love, love, love those cars. Uh, They are a delight. And yeah, they'll do everything you want, get you to the grocery store. But boy, when you want to go, they will go and get the job done for sure. Very cool. Well, like I said, that's an aspirational answer. I'm not sure I actually achieve it. I, in reality, I'm probably more like something like a, a 68 Ford pickup, something that doesn't do anything terribly well, but it does enough adequately that you know it can kind of help you get the job done. I don't know. I think you're underestimating yourself, Aaron, uh, from what I've learned from you today, but uh, uh, that's okay. I think uh, everybody, I've got a lot of guests on the show who've been old pickup trucks who just get the work done, uh, loyal. Everything happens, and that's what we need in this world as well, too. So maybe a mixture of the two it might be in order. Uh, we're going to enter the last lap, and I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you for some quick blips of that C63 throttle. So here we go. What's one of your personal habits you believe has contributed to your successes in life? Well, I, that one habit is, for me, actually, is probably more like a basket of small habits. And I'm referring here just to the importance of having a good morning routine. The first part of that for me is just wake up early. And aside from just being beneficial in its own right, this also just, it forces me to go to bed a bit earlier and prevents those evenings where I find myself wasting time aimlessly browsing social media. So I try to wake up at 5, 5.30 every day. I'm not, however, wild about getting up early, but I don't mind <laughs> being awake. So I keep yeah. my book or a Kindle by my bed and just turn on the light and read for an hour or so. Okay. So reading is the number two part of that. And I try to be pretty selective in what I read. Uh, for about six months ago, in fact, I decided with some rare exceptions to stop reading books that are less than a decade old. I just think it's easy to get caught up in the fads of the moment. Yeah, but certain ideas stand the test of time and classic books tend to be, they tend to have survived for a reason. So I'll usually read for an hour and then around six or 6.30, I always go for a hike. I as you mentioned, live in the very southern end of LA here in San Pedro, which is the harbor area. So I can head down through the docks, check out the fishing boats, say hello to the pelicans, or I can head up into the hills to the west of me and hit the trails and the nature preserves out by the ocean. And so either way, I get five, six miles a day in and usually try to take my camera with me because we live in such a visually rich area and just every day looks different. So wake up early, read, go outside. And then finally, I just make a point of not checking my phone or email or the news or anything like that until about 9 or 9.30 every morning. I just try to plan my mornings the night before so as not to leave them up to chance. And I just really don't want to put the start of my day at the mercy of everyone else, you know, social media, news, et cetera, and what they think is urgent at the moment. So I know that's more than more than one habit, but I can't overstate the importance of a healthy morning routine, whatever that means to you. Yeah, yeah, no, it sounds like an awesome way to start a day. Great advice. How about if I could arrange for you to have a drink or a meal with anyone in the automotive industry, living or deceased, who would it be? Well, a while back, I read The Limit by Michael Cannell, which chronicles the 61 Formula One season, and in particular, the battle between Phil Hill and Wolfgang von Trips for the championship. Now, I unfortunately never got to meet Phil Hill, but I've had the chance to work with and become friendly with his son, Derek, and I really wish I could have known Phil. I just think this was a guy when other drivers were out chasing women and partying, and I don't blame them for that, but he was content to go back to his hotel you know, and listen to Bartok and Shostakovich on his portable stereo and fiddle with his camera, drive into Milan to see the opera at La Scala. Like, this is not your stereotypical driver. Right. And then when it was time to walk away from the sport, he went back home to restore old cars and collect piano rolls. This is a, you know, he was, he strikes me from what Derek has told me as a guy who was pretty philosophical about the dangers of racing and kind of wary of believing in his own hype. And he seemed, 
more reflective and probably more troubled than most about his own motivations for doing something like racing, as absurd as it is. And uh, I, I think in the book, Connell. I think it was Denise McCluggage. He quoted her as referring to Hill as Hamlet with goggles and gloves. And that just sounds like an interesting dinner date to me. Yeah, for sure. Derek's been a guest on my show here. And I had the really distinct pleasure of having lunch one day with Phil Hill. Uh, he was a guest of honor at our local vintage races. And I was racing a Formula Junior Lotus 18 at the time. And he was such a delight. And I had my son with me. And Blake was probably five years old or so. And he was just so nice to Blake. And Got some pictures of Blake and Phil with my car, and uh, it was really a joy. And yeah, it was, it was a great loss. And having to get to know his son now and having him be somewhat of a friend and a guest here on the show, marvelous guy. And I love the book series that Derek put together of his books, of his father's photography, um, because his dad was so prolific in shooting. So yeah, Phil Hill would be a great one. How about automotive advice that someone else has given you? Is there something you can share that's valuable? Well, I was always raised to believe that you should pay cash for your cars, that you should never take on debt to buy a depreciating asset. Yes. Mark. Now, I suppose if you can, if you can, if you know that that car is going to go up 7% and you can borrow it 3%, you know, maybe that's a different story, but I just have a problem with that, I suppose, just temperamentally. And then also, I just, for me personally, I find that when you're thinking of buying a car, just always ask if you're buying it for the right reasons. You know, far be it from me to tell anyone what those reasons should be. But I always find myself wondering whether I want a certain car because of the design or the engineering, or is it because a bunch of my friends happen to have similar cars and I want to fit in with that group? Or do I just want to be seen in the car in the canyons or rolling into cars and coffee? Again, I just I think, like I said earlier, I don't want to be recognized for something that I just went and bought and which anyone with the same cash could have purchased. So I guess that probably makes me a bit of a spoil sport in our industry. I think you're you're uh, you're penny wise um, in a good way. And so many people get over their head with car costs. And and, you're, and if it's a car, it's a driver, daily driver. Yeah. Why take that depreciation hit? You can find some really nice cars. I was in the BMW dealership. I bought my car 15 years ago. My other car is 33 years old. So I keep cars a long time. I don't like having car payments. So I tried to save up over the years and pay cash for cars. Hard to do. Cars are expensive. But I always say, if you can't pay for something, you really can't afford it. So as my dad used to say, save up until you can't afford it. Um, work real hard for that. So I think it's really, really wise advice, especially for young people these days. So much money is spent on things that they finance that in a year or two, they're not even, they don't even care about yet. And they still owe all this money on really not a smart way to spend your dollars and thinking you're going to buy a car. And I've heard this from so many people on my show and my other podcasts I do with Keith Martin at Sports Car Market. Don't buy a car because you think it's going to be worth more, even a collector car, unless you're in the business. Don't do it because it's too volatile. And if you get stuck with it, you might as well get stuck with something you love. So that's that's my my piece of wisdom I've learned from so many smart people, especially people that buy and sell collector cars. Is there a resource out there you'd like to share with our listeners that is a go-to for you? Uh, since we're on a podcast here, I got my first iPod back in 2005, and I immediately got hooked on podcasts. And I won't say I foresaw just how big the medium would become, although... 
kudos to you for seeing this, but I was instantly a huge fan of the format. And so one of the shows I started listening to way back in 2005, in which I still listen to every Monday morning, even now is Econ Talk. It's a weekly conversation, kind of like this between the host, Russ Roberts, and a guest. Sometimes it's another economist, or maybe it's a car dealer from Denver to talk about the economics of car sales, or maybe it's like a literature professor to talk about Jane Austen. But it's always at a level that anyone could understand and appreciate. And I think those 15 years of episodes, which are all available online are just a tremendous resource resource and so if you ever thought economics was dry and boring i point to econ talk as evidence to the contrary and i think just working your way through those episodes would give most people a pretty good foundation in the economic way of thinking and really allow them to appreciate the world in a whole new way absolutely uh, now you mentioned a book earlier and i always like to ask my guests for a book recommendation uh, the limit by was it michael connell uh, Michael Cannell, I believe it was uh, C-A-N-N-E-L-L. I think it's two N's and two L's. Is that the book you'd like to recommend or is there another one? Oh, well, I could probably keep you here all day talking about books if you want to go down that route. But one I've loved, uh, since this is a car show, I'll put another car book recommendation. Uh, I'll put in a plug for He Crashed Me, So I Crashed Him Back, which was written by Mark Bechtel. And I don't really follow NASCAR and rest assured, you don't need to be a close follower of the series to enjoy the book. It's basically, it's a chronicle of the 79 Daytona 500 and its pivotal place in motorsports and American media culture. Prior to that season, NASCAR was pretty much just uh, perceived as a regional sport for unsophisticated rubes in the Deep South. And for the 79 season, however, Bill France inked a deal with CBS to broadcast the Daytona 500 nationally for the first time. And this was going to be NASCAR's coming out party. As an added bonus, a blizzard hit the eastern seaboard on race weekend, which meant that a huge swath of the American population was stuck at home with nothing to do but watch TV. This was perfect for NASCAR. Uh, toward the end of the or toward the finish of the race, uh, however, I think it was once it was Donnie Allison and Kale Yarborough traded paint and ended up sliding into the infield where they proceeded to get out of their cars and into a fist fight with each other. Sure. <laughs> Bobby Allison came around the bend and saw what was happening and decided that he better stop and come to his brother's defense. And pretty soon there's an all out brawl on national TV, which needless to say, hardly helped dispel popular notions about NASCAR at the time. Right. And this was just one part of the story. It was this rookie season for Dale Earnhardt. Richard Petty's career was in a weird spot. And the U.S. media landscape in general was just changing so much at that time. And so just go read the book. <laughs> he crashed me. I crashed him back by Mark Bechtel. It's a ton of fun. <laughs> Sounds like it. All right, Aaron, we're up to the checkered flag. And this last question could be a bit of a doozy. I'm going to buy you a collector card today. Something fun for you to enjoy. But there's a few rules to the game. I want it to be the only collector car you have in your garage, so choose wisely. I want you to drive it. No garage queens. And you can't sell it to buy a bunch of other toys with. So what can I buy you today? Mm, goodness, yeah. Uh, that's a that's questions what my grandmother would call a humdinger. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, even before all the Ford versus Ferrari hype, I would have said it has to be one of the mid late uh, the mid late 60s Ford GT40s. Mm -hmm. And since we're dreaming here, can you just make it one of those that finish one, two, three at Le Mans 66? I'm yeah. not picky. Just choose one and give it to me. Yeah. Uh, your your choice um you know just even beyond their styling which was beautiful and mean and just one of my favorite shapes ever i just love the gt40s blend of john wire and european sports car racing with the greasy american cowboy hot riding culture of carol shelby and holman moody i mean it's just to me it's just great to think that these cars were probably built to a soundtrack of hank williams and george jones and then shipped off to europe so that dan gurney could spray champagne all over them it's just the perfect blend of motorsports culture 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to get you one of those cars. They're just marvelous. And um, I've had friends that have had them, friends that race them. I've been able to, I've never been able to drive one. I have driven a super performance version of the GT40, which was marvelous. Felt just like an old race car to me. That was really fun. Lance Stander, who owns Superformance, uh, let me take one for a drive and enjoy that. It, pretty darn cool um, if you want to relive it. Uh, I do know some folks, I've had a few folks on the show that own, in fact, one owns one of those vehicles. So, um, yeah, I think I know where they are. I'm going to have to scrub up a little change in the sofa cushions here to be able to get you one of those. But uh, I'll do the best that I can. But thanks for leaving it flexible. I could get one of those three. That makes it a little easier for me. You've taken us on a fun ride today, Aaron. I knew this would be a blast, and I want to thank you for being my guest today. Could you offer us one little parting piece of wisdom or guidance before you rip off into the sunset or the coast highway in that beautiful Ford GT40? Well, I guess I would just encourage people, regardless of their job or the task at hand, to find a way to make the process its own reward. I'm all for goals and aspirations, but if you're only happy when you've crossed the finish line, you're going to be miserable most of your life because you're either desiring something you don't yet have or you've achieved it and that striving no longer gives you purpose. So the reward for hard work, if we're lucky, is that we're allowed to do more hard work. And so balance your life with activities that are ongoing, that are valuable in their own right, that don't really have an end line, like being a good parent or spouse or friend. There's no end point to those projects, but also learn to relish the process of working toward a goal as much as you enjoy achieving that goal. Um, and you know, besides, it's just the it's a privilege to be alive and healthy and able to do whatever it is we're doing. And so that process really is its own reward. Absolutely. How do people learn more about you and follow along with your business? The best and easiest places to track me down are on Instagram. I'm at Aaron W. McKenzie. That's my full name with the middle initial. So Aaron W. McKenzie. They can also find my website at AaronMcKenzie.net. And once they've landed at one of those two spots, it won't be too hard to get my attention if they need it. There you go. I'll make sure to put links to those so you can follow along with what Aaron is up to. I encourage you to check out what he's done if you don't already know about him. Pretty spectacular work. Aaron. You've been so generous today with your time and expertise. I want to thank you for uh, making this an inspiring talk. What an eloquent speaker you are. I think you and I could talk forever. Until you and I talk again, though, I'll see you down the road. Thanks, Mark. I enjoyed it. I did, too. Thank you. Hey, Cars Yeah listeners, this is Mark Green. If you love the Cars Yeah podcast, I have something new for you. I've teamed up with Keith Martin, a collector car market expert and the editor of Sports Car Market Magazine to create the Buy, Sell, Hold podcast. Buy, Sell, Hold is the essence of collecting. Together, we take you on an educational ride into the collector car market, talking with industry experts, helping you navigate your collector car journey so you know when to buy, sell, hold. We talk with seasoned experts, who buy, sell, and hold investment vehicles, and they'll share their insider secrets on how they make their buying decisions when it comes to making these important investments. You'll find the Buy, Sell, Hold podcast on the Cars yeah! website, on the Sports Car Market website, and if you're a podcast app subscriber to Cars yeah! Buy, Sell, Hold will come right to your mobile device, just like the Cars yeah! podcast, automatically. Join Keith Martin and me on a great new venture on the Buy, Sell, Hold podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, 
a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah! Yeah!